Who came early to set up the Zendo? Thank you for doing that. Um, so I'm a little tired. Let's have a confession. I attended a dance party last night. Um, thrown by students of the Buddhism program at Union in my apartment to celebrate the news, which some people already know, which is my PET scans came back clean and the cancer is gone. So they very, very kindly made a potluck and dancing ensued. And Nobuko and I were talking about how it's time actually for a dance party here too. So you guys can organize that. We used to do that at 505, it was fun. We blew the speakers out once. They actually caught fire. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not used to that kind of movement <laughs> since I've gone through this. So it's been a it's been a while since I talked about this, but some of you have know that I like this koan called Sometimes it's called, it's case 89 in the Book of Serenity. Sometimes it's called No Grass. Sometimes it's called Dongshan's No Grass. And um, when I was thinking about, when I was thinking about um, what to talk about, this came to me. And just to say a little bit about koans, they're, they're, uh, the word is roughly a translation of something that, of public case. And they kind of emerged between the 10th and 12th centuries in, well, hold on, more like 9th and 12th centuries slowly. But in the Sung Dynasty, they started, the different schools started putting together these groups of conversations between teachers, teachers and students, and so on, as they were building their school. So at the same time, they were kind of putting together their lineage to build the legitimacy of their school. They would assemble these books of a hundred, usually a hundred conversations. And um, we go back to them because they're kind of like precedent for us to look and inquire into them. And in some cases, people interpret the student as making a mistake and the teacher is correcting it. Dogen, who was the founder of our school, the way he interpreted the koans often was everybody was right. And they were just showing different insights into the Dharma from their perspective. I kind of like his non-dual everybody was right way. Um, and you get a little bit of that because the way they're put together, the way they're assembled before I start, um, is that they usually have an introduction and then they have the case itself. And I'll read the introduction in the case. And then they have um, commentary. And then there's something called capping verses or a poem that a later com commentarian would write on it. But in that commentary, you'll often see in very Chinese Chan style, almost insulting language for the teacher. Like, I can't believe he said this, and why did he say that, and so on. And, um, and so there's, there's a sense of challenge in them. But they're also very loving. And I think sometimes we miss that the, um, that the teachers are having kind of a loving response to the student's struggle. 
and the students sometimes a, lo a loving and and combative um, response to the teacher. So I just want to talk about this a little bit. So this one's called No Grass. So the introduction is move. You think about Zazen in this and our lives. Move and you bury your body in 10,000 10, feet deep. Don't move and sprouts grow right where you are. You must cast off both sides and let the middle go. Then you must buy some sandals and travel some more before you'll really attain realization. So move. So right away, we're talking about mind here, right? So if we move, if our mind moves, in other words, if it grasps on to what's arising, right, then we bury the body. The body's gone, right? When we grasp onto something and it becomes the thing that is telling the truth of our experience in that moment, the thought that we're grasping onto, or even the experience, then we're losing, the body has lost communication with life. And so we bury the body 10,000 feet deep. If we don't move, in other words, if we try not to do anything, sprouts grow right where you are. Now, this is an interesting line because at first you might think, and you could argue, you know, you can interpret this as, oh, that's good, new life, right? And we could say, okay, the mind's not moving and there's new life that grows at that point. That's a totally viable interpretation. We can also read it as, you're so useless that things are growing around you at that point, right? That sprouts are just growing around your body because now you're trying not to do anything, right? Holding both of those, I think, is interesting here, right? And not saying one or the other. You, must, you have to cast off both sides and let the middle go. You have to cast off movement and not movement. So when we're talking about zazen practice, we're not sitting down trying not to, right? It's not trying not to think. It's not trying not to do things. This is often what we think in the beginning. It's like, okay, don't have thoughts. You're going to have thoughts. The relationship to the thought is what matters. So thought in and of itself does not necessarily need to activate the will. Okay, so if a thought is arising and falling away, we can just let thoughts arise and fall away. If we either move and follow along with them or try to not move and push them away, we've activated will. We've activated egoic will in both cases, right? So in both cases, we've really moved, right? And there is, and so some, way, some ways of looking at not moving might be intense forms of concentration, or grasping onto experiences like emptiness. There are ways in the tradition that we try not to move. And all of these in the end, the Buddha was clear about, is not, they're not gonna be, the Buddha was really clear about concentration, not in and of itself, not being the pathway, but necessary for it. Or I should say, not being the ultimate resolution of freedom. Um, so there is this thing of releasing from both the mind's movements and the mind's not moving, of life's movement and not movement. 
of activity and non-activity. So we're not replacing activity with non-activity, right? Because you won't be able to. You'll just get, we'll, we get stuck in a rut when we do that, right? And then we spend years trying to be still, you know, and we become rigid and people don't like us. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not fun, really. Um, but even, this is, the, this, is my, this is what I love. And the whole path is here in this little paragraph. Even when we let go and we have the understanding and the mind is really released now from the phenomena that are rising and falling away, whether they be thoughts or just people passing us by, which will include thoughts. Um, even when we're released from that, so it's not, not, that's not enough. Right? Then you need to spend some years wandering around with those understandings, with that realization, with that way of being in the world. It's got to deepen. Talked about this before. It goes back to what Dogen talks about when he says, do not confuse the perception of Buddhahood with the actualization of it. Don't confuse the perception of, oh, I perceive things as empty, or I perceive whatever I perceive. Don't get confused that that's actually what's going on. Right? Because if we do that, then we start grasping the mind. Right? So even if we have a perception about something that's liberating, even if our perception is liberatory, we then have to let go. We have to let go of that, and we have to walk around, get, buy some sandals and walk around for a while and let life happen. Life has to happen to us, and it has to deepen. We have to actually suffer. Okay, let's see what happens. Now we have these realizations. Now suffer and see what happens. You know, and, um, and meet people you don't like and go places that are uncomfortable. And um, because we, it's very easy when we have these well-held perceptions of awakeness or freedom or whatever it is, and then stay in the container where we had them. And then it feels like, look, I'm free all the time. Yeah, but you haven't moved four inches from where you had it. So, yeah, it feels great because you're actually dysfunctional in the world and you're kind of useless. So, so there, so to, to, and this is the difference. We can fall, we can all fall into this. I feel really good when I'm in the temple. So everywhere else must be bad. Or I feel really good when I'm not in the temple. So the temple must be bad. You know, because every time I go in the temple, I feel like crap. It's awful. I sit there and I see all this stuff. It must be something wrong with the temple and the whole tradition and everything that's going on here. We don't want to get into this world of feeling good, feeling spiritually good. And there's nothing wrong with feeling spiritually good. It's great. It's one of the great byproducts of spiritual practice. But if we, if that is the thing that we're holding on to, we're done. Because life is painful. And I think it's the greatest teaching the Buddha gave us. It's just like life is painful. And, and that's that. And if we can accept that it is, then because we can read that. There's all this conversation for years of like, did he say I mean, he actually didn't say life is painful. What he said is, he said, 
samskara or sankara are painful or or are suffering which means the way our mind karmically forms life is what's painful but that's all we got right that's what we have so what we have is the way our mind and life engage each other and give rise to experience that's what we have right so that process is always going to have here and there along the way, some aspect of suffering. So what then is it to be involved in that and um, not try to move and not try to not move? To simply allow it and to feel one's life fully without separating off from it and making a self over here that is trying to control what we think is over there. Right, that split that we do so that I, now I can control my life because it's everything but this whatever this is that I'm putting together in every moment. So then we have the case. I always, you know, it's so funny. I always go back and forth between, it's, I teach in a, in, a, in a seminary. It's another part of my life. And at this point I would go, anybody have any thoughts? You know, and, and it's really hard not to do that in Dharma talks. So Dongshan said to an assembly, so you might not know, you probably do. In, in the Zen tradition and Chan tradition in China, there is this relationship between doing time in a monastery and then wandering in the mountains. And that wandering in the mountains may just be wandering in the mountains, or it may be pilgrimage to other temples to visit them and pay homage to the teachers. That goes all the way back to the Buddha, this mix between people coming together into formal monastic practice and then people going away and, and wandering, or in many cases, going home to their family. Um, Dongshan said to an assembly, it's the beginning of autumn, the end of summer, and you brethren will go some to the east, some to the west. You must go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. I'll just say here, Grass is a poetic representation of phenomena or, or experience. So grasses are experiences. So an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. He also said, but where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? I'm asking you to go where there's no phenomena. But if you can't go, if, 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 how are you going to go where there's no phenomena? Where there's no activity? Shi Shuang said, going out the gate, immediately there's grass. Doyang said, I'd say even not going out the gate, still, there's, still the grass is boundless. I love this sweet moment. It's a very sweet moment because, you know, he's saying, go, go where there is, when we say no grasses, awaken mind in a way. Or, or a mind that isn't caught up in phenomena. So I'm telling you to go find where there's no grasses, but then I'm going to say to you, how are you going to do that if there's literally no experience or no phenomena or no karmic life or no activity? And, um, and you feel the student who's kind of almost afraid to walk out, you know, he's going to go out the door and... 
he says, uh, well, where am I going to, um, you know, as soon as I go out, I'm going to be blasted by this. We feel this way, right? Especially in this town, right? We feel like the minute we go out the door, that's where all the grasses are. And we're going to go out and we're going to be bombarded by phenomena and we're going to kind of lose our center that we gained. This conversation I have had probably hundreds of times with people. I have a center here, I leave, it's gone. Um, I feel like my mind is settled here, I go out, it's not. So you almost feel something like that in this student, right? Okay, I'm going to go out, there's all the grasses. And then the response is, hey, and then they're here too. They're in here too. And um, and so that they're outside and they're inside, that they're outside the monastery, inside the monastery, outside the temple, inside the temple, means where are they really? They're really, my, they're really a function of my own productive mind. They are neither out there or in here, right? That the minute we start talking about an out there and in here, we're really talking about multiple forms of out there. They're out there in the world and they're out there in the temple with all you people. I'm good. You know, everybody else is, you know, the issue. And so, so, and, and we can watch our mind do this in life, we can say, oh, like I was joking about before, but it's kind of true. We can make some world over there the problem where all the difficult karma is happening. Or we can make this place the problem where all the difficult karma is happening. And I feel much better when I'm out there because let's face it, if, I, if I'm out there, I can control a lot of what I'm doing. I can be in my apartment when I want to be. I can watch what I want to do. I can eat the stuff I want to do. I can distract myself in the way I want. You know, and um, and maybe that feels better than being in the temple with all these people I didn't choose, and some of which I don't even like that much. You know, and maybe that feels better. Or maybe the reverse. Maybe we're at a, a place in practice where we're like, no, this is settled, and all that distraction feels like the problem. And so, no, that's the thing. The 10,000 grasses are everywhere. And there will be nowhere they are not. That's the, that's the, that's what has to be deeply realized to our cellular marrow. There will be nowhere they are not. There will be nowhere that our karma and the way it interacts with each other's karma and the way it gives rise to difficult experiences and the, the, the fiery phenomena of life. There's not going to be anywhere that is not. And if there's any part of us that is using spiritual practice to escape that, we're just going to make more of it. We will make more of it and more of it and more of it. And we just have to quietly look at, the cell, look at ourselves and go down and down and down until we find all the subtle ways that we're trying to escape. And it is a... Um, it's not fun. It's not fun to do that. It's, 
it's painful to do it. It's it's much easier to say to say never works to say that there is some way out, and I will find the way out. Zen is the way out. Zen is not the way out. If you're here for Zen is the way out, wrong Zen. This is definitely the way in. In, 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 deeper, 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 deeper into the suffering. Even when there is, even when there's really clear awakenings, that awakening is useless until it's turned towards suffering. It is useless until it's turned towards suffering. It's immature and it's dangerous. Awakenings that are not connected to suffering are immature and dangerous. That's why he says, put on sandals and go wander. Because we have to wander in the world of suffering and in the world of karma. With each other. With a community of people that's willing to do that together. And willing to be merciful for the way when we screw up and when we act from unwholesome karma. Is willing to have space with that. Is willing to say, yes, you're a part of the Sangha. That was a really hurtful, annoying thing you did, and now we have to have a conversation. It was a hurtful, annoying thing I did, and now I have to have a conversation. But we have to willing, willing, like the ancestors here show us, it's more formal, but the ancestors here show us, which is to, um, to dialogue. Because until there's a conversation between two people around, not just, not just around the, the, the necessary things to resolve harm, and to re, that which is important, but the Dharma itself, when the Buddha gave his first teaching, we don't talk about the turning of the wheel of the Dharma until somebody understood it, which is one of the reasons. And then, actually, in the, in the first teaching, it says, now the Dharma wheel has turned. There must be two people together. There must be two people that come together, at least in the way that our tradition teaches it. We say a Buddha meets a Buddha. We have koans of two people meeting. Sometimes the other person might be a tree, but it's another person. You know, there's a relationship that must occur that isn't about me relating only to my mind, which is not a sufficient relationship for a liberatory life. It's just not a sufficient relationship. So, um, and when they, you know, that, um, I'll get to that in a minute. I want to go to the capping verses, which I love, 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 love so much. So this is the verse that was written by a later monastic about the original case. The translation is Thomas Cleary, and I only say that because the last line, which I love, is quite poetic, but I think it's great. Um, Grass boundless, inside the gate, outside the gate, you see by yourself. You're with yourself in both cases. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. I want to say something about this. To set forth in the forest of thorns is easy. This is a play. Sometimes monastics were referred to as trees sitting still on cushions. So a forest of trees is, was a kind of common thing to say. The fact that in here it's replaced by thorns 
is pointing, he's playing, he's saying, yeah, the karma's in there too. It's a forest of thorns, it's not just always trees. So to turn the, to, to set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. In other words, when we have this mind that is clear, when it's a luminous screen, when we have when the mind has really settled, it's really hard to turn outside of that. We want to hang out there. We want to stay in that place. We want to keep going back and back and back. We've got the luminous screen now. Why would I do anything else? Right? Is hard. Look, look how many kinds. Right? So to turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. I'll read it all the way through in a minute. Look, look, how many kinds. So how many things in the world? For a while, going along with the old tree. This is a reference to kind of formal practice. With the, with the same emaciation in the cold. So when formal practice, we might say, one way of interpreting this, when formal practice starts to stagnate. But also, words like, emaciation, cold, are ways of talking about the mind that is quiet in Chan poetry sometimes. So, like, they'll use negative words to talk about a positive thing. So, for a while, going along with the old tree, with the same emaciation in the cold, about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. That light gets me every time. Every time. The term, because scars of the burning, so burning, almost any time you see burning in Buddhism, there's probably some reference to the fire sermon. And the fire sermon is the sermon that the Buddha tells us that the aggregates, everything that makes up our mind and body is always on fire always on fire with suffering until we clarify it. And that that being on fire with suffering is what's causing the suffering of the entire world. It's generating all the fires of the world, of the human world. So that at this point, he says how hard it is to turn away. And he says, but I'm about to follow the spring wind, spring wind, that there's a buoyancy that has been built. The Bodhisattva's buoyancy has been built. About to follow the spring wind into the scars, not just into the burning, but into the damage that has been caused by the burning. About to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. So I'm going to read the whole thing. Grass boundless, inside the gate, outside the gate, you see by yourself. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. Look, look, how many kinds. For the while, going along with the old tree, with the same emaciation in the cold, about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. So all of this looking at the mind in and out of the temple, acting and not acting, is to release the spring wind, right? If we 
try to act, we strangle the spring wind. If we don't try to act, we strangle the spring wind. The spring wind is that which is, is dependent, how we dependently co-arise as who we are in any given moment. We don't need to make ourselves. We actually need to stop trying to make ourselves. You don't need to make ourselves a moment to moment. You don't need to make yourself into a bodhisattva. You need to stop trying to make yourself into who you think you are. Stop grasping, all of us to stop grasping who we think we're supposed to be. And as the mind settles and we stop grasping, the heart opens and a buoyancy arises. And that's the thing that carries us. That begins to carry us. It's no longer karmic choices that necessarily carry us in every situation. It's not that karma disappears. It's just that we're not sitting there just doing things unconsciously out of karma, but we're allowing a moment to arise as me. Allow this room to arise as me. Allow all of you to arise as me. All the ancestors that I've learned from, all my teachers I've learned from, all, the, all my Sangha members that I've learned from, everyone I've ever learned from, arising is me right now. There is no Gregor Kosin along the way that interrupted that process and made it mine. That moment never happened. It was always river. It was always flowing. It was always everything else arising as this one. So, when we stop going or stopping, that spring wind can be born and when that spring wind is born as the buoyancy, it allows compassion to move us into the spaces of suffering. And we don't have to turn the suffering into something it's not. We don't have to make it good. We don't have to make it bad. We don't have to do anything with it. We don't, bodhisattvas don't, I mentioned this, bodhisattvas don't feed hungry people because of some other reason, then they are hungry. You don't need another reason. The fact that we need a convoluted argument for that so that it can be politically acceptable is just massive delusion on top of delusion on top of delusion. Hungry, feed the person, fall down, help them up. Two-year-olds get this. We don't. We lose it and become buried in our ideas about what's, even what's just. People use justice to be, to, to lack compassion all the time. So, about to follow the spring winds, spring wind into the scars of the burning. Oh, and I will say one more thing. Working to see the karma that causes violence coming from this one, from me, and the ones that, that we consider unwholesome and that harms, and those that supports, carries, 
manifests, nourishes liberation and awakening and compassion and love in others, sitting down on this cushion is that process. We're looking at it and we're doing that so that we can do more of this. And in doing more, whatever we choose or don't choose is the path we're going to lay for everyone else. It's not just about us. Whatever karma we choose or don't choose is the path we are going to lay for everybody else coming. I, was, I remember um, I was at um, Assisi and I was walking on a sidewalk of the monastery at Assisi. I was walking on a sidewalk and the, and the monk I was with at the time stopped me and very casually said, St. Francis laid this sidewalk. Which immediately I was like, I got to get off the sidewalk, you know. But um, St. Francis laid the sidewalk and we're walking on the sidewalk. All of us here are laying a sidewalk that in hundreds of years people are going to be walking on. With, with every karmic choice, not to put pressure on where we freak out and hate ourselves because we're, we fail, and I fail a thousand times a day, but to just not forget that we are not doing this for ourselves. We are doing this to lay the path for everyone to come, every being to come, all the beings now and every being to come. So I'll stop there. May our intention equally Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.